Hello, it's Peter here. It's midwinter and we are midway through our sixth season of recordings. Although Travels Through Time still feels quite young to us, we're now actually four years old, which in podcasting terms is pretty grown up. We thought we'd mark our birthday and the start of a new year with a little look back. We've lots of favourite episodes from over the years, but today we're going to replay a classic conversation that we know lots of you have enjoyed. For newer listeners, it might be something new. It's a recording of me talking to the Oxford professor Dermot McCulloch live at the Buxton Literary Festival in 2019. We visit the year 1536 and talk about a complex and fascinating figure in English history, Thomas Cromwell. Hello. Hello. So my name is Peter Moore and welcome to a live recording of Travels Through Time. Today I'm at the Buxton Festival in Derbyshire. We're hoping to have time spare later for a few questions, if you've got any, from our audience. But before then, as ever, I'm going to examine one year in history in three different scenes with an expert guest. Today we have a real treat for you. Our guest is Professor Dermot McCulloch, a decorated and hugely admired historian. Dermot is Professor of Church History at the University of Oxford, where he's a Fellow of St. Cross College. Among Dermot's best-known works are his biography of Thomas Cranmer, which won the Whitbread Biography Prize, the James Tate Black Prize, and the Duff Cooper Prize. In 2004, he won the Wolfson History Prize for Reformation, Europe's House Divided, 1490 to 1700. And his latest book was released last year. It's a life of Thomas Cromwell, or maybe Cromwell, I should say, Henry VIII's ruthless enforcer. Hilary Mantel called it the biography we have been awaiting for 400 years. Welcome to Travels Through Time, Dermot. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about Cromwell and the year 1536. We're going to be seeing Cromwell as a plotter, a fighter, and a very vulnerable courtier, as everyone always was. Before we dive into this history, I want to begin by asking you what it was that drew you towards this 16th century world. Oh, well, that takes you back to my childhood. Uh, My dad was a country parson in Suffolk and had two beautiful medieval churches. And one of them was full of Tudor monuments, tombs, to a very particular family called Salyard, who'd done very well in the late Middle Ages, and they'd built part of the church. And then at the Reformation, they went on to be Roman Catholic recusants. In other words, by definition, they refused to go to church, except that they didn't, because they went on burying in this family aisle. It was their aisle. And as a child, I pondered over that paradox. What a monster little child I was, worrying about historical paradoxes (laughs) when I was 10. But uh, it stuck with me. And when I went to university, I did lots of different things as an undergraduate, but the Tudors became more and more prominent. And so that's why Cromwell in the end, because you meet Cromwell straight away under the Tudors. And then I met him in the fierce persona of my doctoral supervisor, Sir Geoffrey Elton, who knew more about Thomas Cromwell than possibly Thomas Cromwell knew about himself. Which is an interesting premise, of course. Cromwell's whole reputation has undergone a complete um, rejuvenation in ways over the last 10, 15 years for various reasons. What was your first impression of Cromwell when you came across him as an undergraduate back then or or a doctoral student? Yeah, I, of course, got Sir Geoffrey's point of view, which was the supreme man of business who changed everything. 
And I think Geoffrey was right in the sense of something of what he once said about the 16th century, that you look at it in the 1520s, you look at it in the 1590s, and it has been transformed. And the crucial era is the 1530s. So that stuck with me. Then I went through uh, a life of history in which I encountered, of course, Robert Bolt's famous play way back 60, 70 years now. And, and that was such an effective piece of drama and with such an effective film attached to it where everyone looked like their Holbein portraits. It's extraordinary. And, and it's not surprising that that play really cast Thomas Moore in the spotlight as the goody. And if you're going to have a goodie like Thomas More, you've got to have a baddie, and it's going to be Thomas Cromwell. And I felt that somehow there was something wrong with that. It can't be that simple. And Geoffrey, of course, loathed Robert Bolt. He loathed Thomas More, actually. And uh, then, as I formulated my idea about 20 years ago of writing a biography, suddenly heard that the, a novelist called Hilary Mantel mm. was also going to write about Cromwell. I've heard of her as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the, the, when I read Wolf Hall, the first of the great, what is going to be a trilogy, I thought, gosh, she knows about Tudor England. And I wrote to her and said so. I was so impressed. And we, we became friends on that basis, that she really knows her Tudor England. But I also felt, and you, you may have felt this too, uh, anyone reading Wolf Hall, that... He is a bit of a goodie, isn't he? You can imagine him reading The Guardian. <laughs> and I'm not I, sure I can, but I'm, well, I'm going to enjoy it, the picture. He's a, a thoughtful, liberal, detached guy, because he's always <laughs> he in those novels, isn't he? And then you read the second novel, Bring Up the Bodies. Yeah, he's reading The Telegraph. You see mm. there's an architecture mm. to the trilogy, mm. that she has planned it that way. She is revealing character and... Spoiler alert, the third one will do more of that. It will be a far more rounded, it will be a, a complete, marvellous cathedral of a trilogy. Mm. So we're talking about Cromwell here. The great figure of the age, of course, is Henry VIII, the king, of course. Have you, have you been similarly attracted by him? Or is it just that he's this great force at the centre of the period? He is there, by the grace of God, as he would have thought. The more you know about Henry VIII, the more you dislike him. Mm. He was clearly enormously charismatic. He had the charisma that Stalin had. And that is not to condemn him entirely, because people wept when Stalin died, and they wept when Henry VIII died. And it's difficult for us to feel that charisma. Holbein just about gives it to us in the great portraits. But more often you feel irritated by this man staring out at you, big fat thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, clearly he could fascinate very clever people like Cromwell mm -hmm. and very good people like Thomas Cranmer and make them do bad things. So I think that's a good setup. Let's think about this year 1536, which is a superb choice in many ways because it's so poised in, this, in the middle of this decade of great administrative change, um, religious reform as well. And at the same time, you've got some really fascinating interpersonal dynamics going on. So the year before, of course, we've had the execution. Sir Thomas Moore has lost his head along with... Bishop Fisher, Bishop. John Fisher, Bishop of Rochester. So that was that. We've got the Anabaptists, haven't we, who are on the continent. And they were causing great 
um, distress, almost a bit like an ISIS today. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, exactly, exactly. That, that idea that people could be coming into the country and causing subversion in a religious sense. You've got the king and Anne Bolin, I should say. If I'll, I'll try and do it and do my best. But they've been on a progress in the southwest, haven't they, through yeah. the latter part of 1535. And, um, it, and it's gone really well. It's gone smashingly well. They've gone yeah. to this place called Wolf Hall, which is another story completely. Yeah. But, and they say let's not go there. Let's not yeah. go there. But obviously the, the year starts with a few really tantalising chronological stepping stones. You have the death of Catherine of Aragon in January, don't you? And then, within a very short period of time, you have this moment when Henry VIII falls during um, a joust in the tilt yard. You have Anne Boleyn's miscarriage, mm. which sets, I think, a really powerful, dramatic backdrop to the event that we're going to talk about for our first scene, which I'm going to go to directly because we're going to do a lot of filling in the gaps as we go. The first scene you've chosen is on the 24th of May, 1536. Do you want to tell us what's happening on that day and why we want to go there for our first scene? 24th of May, 1536. Here is a conversation between Thomas Cromwell and the imperial ambassador Eustace Chapuis, a clever man uh, from the Low Countries, French-speaking by birth and upbringing, and what you might call a sparring partner for Thomas Cromwell. They know each other's worth. They are, in a sense, opposite sides. Cromwell is the great minister of a king who was broken with the Pope, who has humiliated the aunt of the Holy Roman Emperor. Chapuis profoundly disapproves of that. And yet he's got a sort of sneaking liking for Cromwell. And but you wouldn't describe this at all as a friendship. It's a it, 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 no, it's, it's a working partnership of people who could have quite a good evening together. Mm. And despite the fact that they are servants of different masters, they're, they're now converging on a particular project which unites them. And it is to do with the Queen to do with the Queen. I think the most important thing we should say at this point is that by May the 24th, Anne Boleyn is dead. And one of the great recurring conversations about this period is what happened during the fall of Anne Boleyn. And what does Cromwell say to Chapuis? He, he says that he organised it. He organised it. And Chapuis takes this very much on board and reports it back to his master. He's a bit puzzled by the me mechanics of this, but perhaps I can explain the mechanics at this stage. Queen Anne Boleyn and Cromwell have always been seen as allies in history because they're both agents of the Protestant Reformation. There is no doubt about that. They are both convinced Protestants, enemies of Rome. And so over the centuries, really from the 1560s, they have been seen as allies. And then this extraordinary event that we're in the middle of in May 1536 happens, in which it is patent, because not only because he says so, that Cromwell actually engineered the, the Queen's downfall. He turned what had been a crisis between the monarch and his wife, um, an, a set of arguments, a gradual fading of love, into destruction. 
and only Cromwell could have done that. Why? Why did he do it? And as I wrote the biography, I had to puzzle that one out. And I did it in parallel with the work of Hilary Mantel, because she had spotted what I had begun to spot, which is that the key to this puzzle, this paradox, is Cromwell's previous employer, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey. Now, Wolsey had been the great man in the 1520s. He'd uh, employed Cromwell to do a particular job for him. Uh, and he had fallen because he had not been able to do the job which Henry VIII wanted the cardinal to do, which was end a marriage of two decades to the Queen, Catherine of Aragon, and replace her with Anne Bullen. Now, Cromwell had been involved in the mechanics of that. There is no doubt of that. And so it, it, it didn't seem to make sense why he should not be her ally. But the, the Wolsey connection is it. Anne hated Wolsey and was the chief agent of his downfall destruction. Cromwell loathed that. And you can see the execution as his act of revenge. Those in our readership and your audience, our audience, will perhaps have read the second novel of Hilary Mantel, Bring Up the Bodies, in which you see that the whole thing is a series of acts of revenge on those who humiliated the cardinal. And here's the chief one. Now that's what Chapuis was witnessing and hearing about in this conversation. Where is this conversation recorded in the archives? It's in Chapuis's diplomatic letters. It's in Chapuis's letters back to his master, Charles V. So all this correspondence is either in Vienna or Brussels, which are that, the Habsburg archive repositories. And it's, it's a marvelous treasure house, a window on Tudor England from someone who is a very intelligent observer of what is going on, a sort of Tudor Kremlinologist, if you like. Are these descriptive accounts, or are they very analytical? Well, they're both. They, they describe conversations, uh, and then they reflect for the emperor on what it all means. Uh, an extraordinary so luxury. One of the absolute key sources of the time. It, 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 without it, we'd be lost in all this, because, very interestingly, the archive in the state papers, in, in the, in, that's in the English Royal Archive, in other words, thins out at this point. And I think it thins out because it's been deliberately weeded, possibly more than once, first by the Seymours who provided Queen number three in Henry's life, and then at uh, Thomas Cromwell's death, I think some other weeding has taken place to disguise certain relationships which would now be embarrassing. So, I, what I was going to just do is a bit of gap filling here because this event has happened very quickly. When we were talking about the chronology, there was this miscarriage that happened at the, I think, late in January. Yeah. At which point, to all intents and purposes, the royal marriage is continuing. There may be some whispers. Mm. There's a parliament which is about to begin, which runs until the start of April. And you say, and you write in your book, that those who were attuned, those who had their ear to the ground and noticed such things, would have spotted that by the end of this parliament, all was not well. So this is around maybe the 10th of April. Getting up towards Easter. Yeah. And there was another really interesting source for this period, wasn't there, that you have written about at length in the book, mm. and maybe which is, as a contrast to Chapuis, who's well-known, something which is a bit fresher. 
Yes, it's a source which has been in the public domain since the Victorian period, but people haven't spotted it because it's slightly out of time. It is a letter written in 1559 to Queen Elizabeth, the new Queen Elizabeth, by a Scotsman who called himself Alexander Alicius. Alicius is the wanderer in sort of Greek thing. You know, scholars did this in the 16th century. Uh, and it's a rather self-important, long, long letter saying how important Alicius was uh, to Elizabeth's backstory. Because he'd been in England in the 1530s and, and witnessed things, particularly the, this atmosphere of the downfall of her mother, Anne. So he's explaining to the new queen, presumably in hopes of reward, how it looked in 1536. And what he says is precisely Thomas Cromwell was at the heart of this affair from January through to the death. And that's odd because Alicius is a Protestant, uh, a self-proclaimed uh, convinced Protestant from the 30s. So it wouldn't have been something he would invent. It wouldn't have been creditable to the Protestant hero to have destroyed the Protestant heroine. But that's what he's saying. He seems to have this ability. There's, there's characters in history who have this uncanny ability. Samuel Pepys was another one to just turn up yeah. at important moments. It's the Zelig factor, isn't it? And Zelig, is... <laughs> always there when something important is happening. Yeah, exactly, to be bear witness to the history. And you have this quite, I thought it was an extraordinary scene when he seems to go down to Greenwich, Elysius. And he looks through the window and he sees the king and Anne Boleyn having a stand-up argument. They're shouting at each other, pointing at each other. Yeah, and it's too far away for But to he can't hear, hear what they're saying. Yeah. Which is so it's all like that and through the window. So this is the 2nd of May, I think, that happens on roundabout, just before Anne is arrested and taken off to the yeah. tower. And she's holding the baby Elizabeth in her arms. Oh up my to goodness, the king. this is... Oh, he couldn't do anything to me. And, well, who knows? I, I can see the historical artists kind of yeah. getting excited by this vision now because it, it's completely arresting. But one which also, I suppose, has an absence, which is Thomas Cromwell again. Yeah. And this idea of him, meanwhile, over in Stepney, yes. there's, um, is it Mark Smeaton, who yes. has um, fallen foul of his methods? Yeah. Do you want to tell us what Cromwell's methods were? Well, Cromwell's methods uh, were intense intelligence gathering, knowing people very well, and therefore having lots of ears open for him and lots of mouths telling him things. And possibly at the middle of it, interrogation. Mm. And that interrogation might have involved, in the case of this young musician at court, Mark Smeaton, torture which might be thumbscrews. It, it, it's unlikely to be really sort of heavy-duty machinery torture, mm. if you see what I mean. Uh, but more likely, I think, it is psychological pressure. Here, Thomas Cromwell is a man of intense strength and power, with, with a, a fierce temper. And there is a, a, a young teenage musician. You don't really need much torture. In fact, torture may get in the way because you want to know things, rather precise things. So, would I be right to conclude that an outcome has been decided on, the case has to be constructed to support that outcome? Yes, the outcome must be that the Queen has indulged in treasonous sex with other people. And just to put the, the icing on this evil cake, uh, incest with her own brother, George, um, Lord Rochford. Rochford. 
And that's the story which must be pinned down in a court to the satisfaction of a jury chosen by Cromwell. Mm. And this is an intensely law-abiding society and an intensely law-observing society. But it is the king's law. And it is there, among other purposes, to defend the monarch against evil and harm. And in a sense, Anne is uh, a threat to the king by her very existence now and by her, her lack of buying into the myth of Henry VIII anymore. Mm. That's the thing. Here's an intensely thin-skinned monarch who loves being loved and loves be the adulation of being a monarch and hates being sniggered at. And I think Anne's fatal mistake was to snigger at the king in the presence of handsome young men. And I don't think she did anything more than that in practice. We've done the analytical history. Let's imagine for a moment ourselves on the 24th of May and go back to that. What would Cromwell, do you think, from, you've spent a long time with Cromwell, looked at his letters mm. as, a, as a biographer and a subject. You create a relationship. Do you think in this conversation with Chapuis that we've begun with, would Cromwell have half a smile on his face? Or was he a cooler character than that? No, a half smile. And, and actually, Chapuis frequently says uh, he could hardly contain his grin about something or other. He had a great sense of humour, but dark sense of humour, Cromwell, I think. And he knew that <laughs> Chapuis had the same sort of sense of humour. Mm. And of course, they, they both got what they wanted, which is the destruction of um, the, the woman as Chapuis often called her, or the whore, which is how he addressed in the letters to the emperor, not to her. And so now there is a result. And this is, this is a debriefing scene, isn't mm. it? They are very diplomatically, cautiously saying, yeah, we, we've got what we want now. So if we're going to build the scene a tiny bit more, where would they have met? I know we don't know necessarily. In, what would be a typical place for them to meet? It would probably be one of the many rooms in the King's New Palace in Whitehall. Less likely Cromwell's own private house in the east end of the city, which is called Austin Friars. Or, and there's loads of venues, and that's part of the, the skill of Tudor government, you can go to places. The other one is the house called The Rolls, yeah. which is in Chancery Lane, and you can still see a fragment of it in uh, what used to be the old public record office. So it's, in one small, it's a small room, and probably there will be a servant hovering outside, but no one else there. Someone within call. So this is a very private event. Right, okay. Well, let's leave. I, I think this can be characterized as a moment of triumph for Cromwell, because not a year before, he had admitted himself that Anne would like to see his head off. So maybe it was a question of he goes or she goes, and now she's gone completely. So we're going to leave that for our second scene, which is... 3rd of October, 1536. Uh, so we're going forward in time, five, six months or so. Yeah. The summer's whizzed by. I was thinking what I should add as an interval thing. Well, Henry, um, Henry's illegitimate son, Fitzroy, the Earl of Richmond has died. Everything's um, gone Cromwell's way, really. Everything's gone Cromwell's way. Mary has been, um, she's, I don't know, decided to go along with the idea that she's illegitimate. Yes, uh, for the huge, huge price of yeah. being recognised as heir to the throne. And that had been the whole point since January. 
Thomas Cromwell had been working with the Lady Mary, the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, to get her back in the succession, because they both have a single enemy, Anne. And that's, now it's all done, it's all done and dusted. And actually, Lady Mary gets on extraordinarily well with the new queen, Queen Jane Seymour, mm-hmm. and her large family of Wolf Hall. Mm-hmm. This, this is a, a going concern, a Seymour-Lady Mary axis, with Cromwell as the broker. In so through the summer months, has been a real change of tone, new marriage, of course. Maybe baby on the way? No, not quite not yet. Quite. Not quite. It's, but maybe in production. It's, uh, yeah, absolutely. Going well. Going well, well. What happens on the 3rd of October? Because things have taken a bit of a bad turn for Cromwell after his recent victories. Yeah, well, trouble up north. First in Lincolnshire, news, absolutely catastrophic news now from York. There had previously been unrest in Lincolnshire, which looked very threatening. It looked as petering out, and suddenly there is this awful news. A real, real rebellion from the north. Which begs the obvious question, why? What was the spark and what was the cause? Well, the cause is Thomas Cromwell. Right. Uh, and the actions of Thomas Cromwell, as the public perceived them, of the destruction of very many small monasteries. And this seems to be at the heart of the trouble. All over the Midlands in Lincolnshire and and the north of England, Yorkshire and all points north, monasteries had been closed by commissioners who were clearly identified with Thomas Cromwell, some of whom were his personal servants. And now people were reopening the monasteries and rounding up the servants that they could get and it's all because of Thomas Cromwell and all this news pouring in to a king who had not noticed and now feels that his loyal subjects are not loyal subjects at all. And who is he going to blame? The obvious man, and, and in a sense accurately, Thomas Cromwell. We have this understanding that Cromwell took over where his former boss, Cardinal Wolsey, had left off. And Wolsey famously did the business whilst the king played. You know, that was the, the dynamic. Yeah. And has this relationship just continued? So Henry doesn't really involve himself too much in the, the running of the country. That is farmed out to the chief minister, yeah. who just has to keep things on an even keel. One thing which is different between Wolsey and Cromwell yeah. is that Wolsey had involved himself in foreign policy a great deal, and Henry didn't allow Cromwell to do that. He kept it in his own hand. He was actually... 20 years, 30 years on the throne by now, Mm. 20 years on the throne, and he felt it was the prerogative of kings. But yes, running the country, the tedious business of collecting taxes, um, putting policies in place, and even suggesting policies domestically, that had been the job first of Wolsey, now of Thomas Cromwell, and in many ways, Thomas Cromwell was just carrying on Wolsey's policies, including dissolving monasteries. And there's a, there's a kind of link here before with what you were saying about Henry. The worst thing that could happen to Henry would be a loss of prestige, a loss of face. Of course, if, you're, if your wife is having an affair with your brother-in-law, that's bad. Mm. I'm not sure in the scheme of things, but probably equally bad to find out that your subjects are in rebellion. Yeah. And you don't know why. What's going on? I've given you this job. Yeah. Why is the... Precisely, my subjects love me. They all love me. And they had loved him in the West Country because they had seen him and he'd done his jolly king.
King Hal bluff thing, uh, and it had gone down extremely well. And interesting, the Reformation went down well because people saw the king being involved with reformers and uh, promoting reformed policies in, in a sort of Reformation direction. The trouble about the North was that Henry VII had gone there a lot, but Henry VIII had never bothered. He ne- I, this is something you wrote, and it snagged when I, I... He never went to the He'd North. He'd never gone north of, say, Ampt Hill in Bedfordshire or Grafton. These are, these are sort of South Midlands hunting places. That's just sheer laziness. Was it because of the distances and the inconvenience, or did he have a dim opinion of the northern folk, would you say? I'm not sure about that, not until they rebelled. I mean, he certainly <laughs> had a dim view then, but uh, I, I just think he, he, he knows what he likes. He likes a good time on hunting grounds he knows well. Uh, the West Country thing shows that uh, he should have had the sense to do the same thing again, but he kept putting it off. So, of course, Henry is culpable here as much as Cromwell, but Cromwell is the person who's instigating a lot of the religious reforms which are causing deep unhappiness yeah. at a local level. So if you're having your local priory or monastery closed down... Yes, and, and when the Lincolnshire business broke out... What is fascinating is that the first thing that the people of Louth did uh, to express their fury was to go to the local nunnery, Legbourne, which had been closed. And this was the very first monastic house which Cromwell had himself taken into his own hands. And it was his servants there whom they now rounded up and mm. humiliated. You've got um, some quotes which just, again, leap out of the page, which really personally link the unrest with Cromwell himself. And they talk about, if we had him here, we would crumb him and crumb him so he was never so crumb web, which is probably where we get a hint to the pronunciation of Cromwell from. Cromwell, yeah. Um, yeah. That's right, isn't it? That's how you know his his name was pronounced Cromwell. Yeah. Yeah, otherwise the joke doesn't work. And so this is a rebellion which later takes on a name called... The pilgrimage. the pilgrimage of grace for the commonwealth. People always forget that. And that, what it means is it, it's a, meant to be presented as a great procession beseeching the king for the whole of society, the commonwealth. It is a sort of religious event, but it sounds a bit too religious if you say the pilgrimage of grace. It sounds it, like the gentlest rebellion. Exactly, you could imagine, doesn't it? The pilgrimage of grace. And, I mean, it's, it's also a wonderful piece of spin doctrine because yeah. it is a rebellion. And they call themselves pilgrims, don't they? They do. They're not they rebels, they, they are pilgrims. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful way of giving them a common ideology from all their different concerns and annoyances and angers. They can all be brought into this single, we are pilgrims. And it's, a, of course, a great thing to be in medieval society. A pilgrim, what could be better? And a great thing about a pilgrim is that they move, they travel. And that's a very good way of getting an army ideologically from one point to another. Mm. So around the 3rd of October, we can't be sure of the actual date because the records don't exist. There is a moment when the king learns of this. Is he absolutely incandescent? I think that's rather likely, isn't it? Mm. Uh, He is another man with a very bad temper. And who knows what Cromwell would have done at that point? The perhaps sensible thing would be to say, yes, Your Majesty, I'm entirely to blame. Uh, And there is evidence that that's how Cromwell often coped with the king. But another way would be to actually shout back, and these are two men with fierce tempers, 
to, to the extent that the king then slaps you across the face. And then, of course, you have to say, oh, I'm very sorry, Your Majesty, I'm very sorry, and leave. And for the king to win in this symbolic fight. And there is actually a record of a later occasion on which courtiers noticed that the shouting match, through the, through, they could hear it through the door, then they heard the slap. And then Cromwell walked out of the door, sort of rubbing his face and smiling. Isn't that a tremendous set piece scene? Because I, you know, from my position of ignorance down here, would never imagine anyone really talking in that way to the king. But you have evidence to suggest that yeah. Cromwell did. Yes, and I think that's part of Henry's psychology. A good argument, but I have to win. It's like his tournaments. Now, he's actually good at tournaments. But would it and, be an argument? And, but he has to win most of the time. But the, it sounds like they're very coded in a behavioural sense, these arguments, because yeah. the moment you lift your hand to your monarch, it, this is prohibited, surely. Absolutely, yes, it, it so is. So you might share well, he, There would never be any question of Cromwell hitting the king, but the king can hit him. Yeah. So, so it has to be verbal violence followed by the one person who can do the real violence. Good. Well, I think on the 3rd of October, 1536, we can imagine something like this. Where did Cromwell and the king usually meet? What was... Um, usually at court. Usually at court. Very, very rarely would the king co uh, condescend to go and see Cromwell. Only actually once we know of when he was very ill, when Cromwell was very ill, the king went to visit him in the rolls in Chancery Lane. Which yeah. As you know, there's a, those of you who know Westminster in London, it's not much of a journey. Right. It's, it's about 20 minutes. It's massively symbolic. Though, 10 minutes it? it is. Uh, but the point was that Cromwell could not get to court and transact business. Mm. So he, the king would have to go to his sickbed. Mm. And of course, it, it is also a, a great you know, affirmation. How are you doing? You're all right. Right. Let's get on with some business. Yeah. Pilgrimage of Grace uh, just belies its name, doesn't it? It was a very serious business. And at this point in October, I don't think it was controllable in a, in a very short-term sense, okay? Yeah. There, was, there was a plan that was needed. There was no plan available. There was a sense of overreach in a political sense. Yeah. Um, and and a, lo a lot of people saying, I told you so to the mm. king about Cromwell. So there are lots of noblemen who yeah, are not that displeased. So let's imagine Norfolk as well, because he's the, um, the arch enemy of the, of the first... Thomas movie. Howard, third Duke of Norfolk. Yeah. Yes. It's a tightrope, isn't it? Um, this whole business, metaphorically, of yeah. the Tudor court, keeping your balance. Was this one of the moments in Cromwell's career before his big fall four years later, when he nearly fell down? Oh, very much so because waiting all the time were the noblemen, particularly the Duke of Norfolk, who had expected on the fall of Cardinal Wolsey to achieve their uh, rightful place as the king's chief servants. Mm -hmm. God had given them, them the place as much as God had made Henry Monarch. Mm -hmm. And these upstarts, first the cardinal, and now this boy from Putney, taking over their power. And now he's made a big mistake. And Thomas Howard, who'd actually sort of left court in a sulk over the previous two or three years, uh, was thinking, well, what, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Now is my chance. Now is my chance. But how can he do that? And he's still, he is still in Norfolk, uh, in, in Kenninghall Palace. And he's, what is the king thinking? Is he thinking that 
that the Duke would be a good chief minister now, but I haven't heard, I haven't heard. And you get these angry, angry letters, these anxious letters to the king. What's going on? I want, to, I want to come and help. Please, Your Grace, let me come and help. Mm, one of the joys of your biography is actually reading not just these goings-on and the machinations at court, but going out into the country and seeing the disputes between Cromwell's agents in the parishes or people who are a transient or there might be a, a murder case in one, in one um, Yorkshire mm. um, village which kind of goes wrong and it seems that this is a moment when right across England you have all sorts of different grievances coalescing okay? they might not all be to do with religion, it might be local um, power battles being played out and I think that's where we should leave that second scene and go to the third because something quite interesting happens between this one and the next. So what's your third scene, please? This is, we've arrived at 22nd of December, 1536, and the scene now is definitely in a room in the Rolls, just off Chancery Lane, and that's within earshot of Fleet Street. And Fleet Street is the main processional route from the city of London out to Westminster and a magnificent procession is passing with all the clergy you can possibly think of followed by all the great secular people you can possibly think of the Lord Mayor and the corporation any any passing nobility whatever and the mm -hmm. king and they're all going off uh, in this magnificent procession uh, to Greenwich from Whitehall and Cromwell is not in it he's sitting in his study his parlour in the rolls, thinking and probably smiling, I've made it, I've made it through. And the king's made it through, of course, his grace has made it through. And the pilgrims are happy because they've all gone home and they've been promised the earth and the one thing they haven't been promised is me. They are not going to get me. And that had been their aim right from the start. We must destroy Thomas Cromwell. We must crumb him and crumb him till he was never so crumbed. And he has not been crumbed at all. It's a tremendously vivid scene. So I'm going to use a bit of description from your book, which talks about this procession going down Fleet Street. It says the streets richly were behanged with gold and arras. The four orders of friars standing in Fleet Street with copes of gold, with crosses and candlesticks and censers, and so on through the city streets. The Bishop of London and abbots and cathedral choir and two priests from every city church, guildsmen, noise, triumphal cheers. It's like this is one of the great moments of spectacle that we so often think of when we think of Tudor England. These were important, weren't they? These yes. moments and the symbolic uniting of the two ancient cities of Westminster and the city with the king. Politics the as theatre. Very, very important in an age where people are symbols of power. The king is a symbol of power. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet Thomas Cromwell never, until his last years when things began to get out of hand, I don't think he really enjoyed that so much. He's, uh, or at least saw that it might be best if he kept out of the limelight in order to be the stage manager of it all. Undoubtedly, he'd organized all this. He'd told the city authorities to get it sorted. And yet there he is in his study with his pile of correspondence, keeping ears open to Wales and the North and the West and Ireland 
and just thinking, right, I think, I think I've got it. I think I've got my hands on after this. A terrifyingly, after a terrifying moment of peril, Cromwell was safe. The royal armies were still dangerously weak in relation to the thousands of insurgents across a swathe of the north. But something had changed. This is from the book. And I'm going to ask you how, from the moment of real danger in October, on, and when they're having this argument, yeah. the king and Cromwell, what did he do to ameliorate his situation so that he could metaphorically rest back in his chair, enjoy the sounds of the music, and tobacco hadn't arrived, I'm sure, in Tudor England, no, but if it had, yeah. he would have lit a cigarette and put his feet up. <laughs> yeah. uh, first thing would be frantically to do all the organisation to get that royal army, get enough finance. Get, where's the money going to come from for this royal army? Uh, and that, that meant scrabbling around all his city friends. So that's the job in October, keeping an ear open for what the royal armies are doing, making a decision, okay, we've got to involve the Duke of Norfolk, send him up to the north, he's, he's got um, a bit of clout there, let's use that. But all the time, if you do that, if you let the Duke loose, what's he going to do? Is he going to ally with the pilgrims? And what is Henry's balance going to be in all this? Because the, the king can now choose the Duke, Pilgrims, Cromwell. And there was clearly a moment in November where he was about to sacrifice Cromwell. And we know this because there is a draft of the appeal he made to his northern subjects. It's a sort of angry, rambling, self-justifying um, letter to the whole of the north of England. It's saying, look, I've been a good monarch and my councillors have been absolutely splendid and noble and here's the list of the names without the name of Thomas Cromwell or actually the name of Archbishop Cranmer either. It looks as if in a, in a, a first week of November the king's thought is, yeah, I'll sacrifice them. Let me let's put them on the table anyway. And it's clear, I think, that this is done at Windsor Castle where the king had holed up safe place. Cromwell is in uh, the Thames Valley, around uh, that area between Hampton Court and London, the various places you can be. Frantically keeping in touch via one plant in the King's private apartments, Sir Rafe Sadler, who had been his own servant. And I think Rafe is, is keeping an ear open all the time. In fact, this draft of which I've spoken is actually in Rafe Sadler's hand. And this survives it, in it the It survives archive. in the state papers in the, in the National Archive. So Sadler, having written this for the king, straight back to Cromwell said, look, look, you can see the implications of this. And the next thing that happened was that the king did something very unusual. He moved from Windsor Castle down to one of his old palaces at Richmond, Richmond Palace, where he'd actually been born. And at this time, Richmond was sort of semi-derelict. It, it was uh, not the sort of hotel you'd go and stay in, frankly. Yet the king went there. Now, the point of geographically about Richmond, and many of you will realize this, is that it is very near Cromwell's then chief country home, Mortlake. They're about a mile apart. So now the king can be very near Thomas Cromwell and Cromwell can be very near the king. And in the reign of Henry VIII, that's vital. The way you manipulate the king is to look straight in his eyes. Henry doesn't like that. A foreign ambassador, not Chapuis, said, one of the funny things about this man is he won't look you in the face. 
But if you did, you'd keep him, you'd get him. And I think that's what Cromwell had done. And so the next draft of the letter to the North names Thomas Cromwell and Thomas Cranmer as good guys, splendid guys. The moment of peril had passed. What a tantalizing omission in an archive. Is this something that people have looked into before, or is this something that during your research process rose out as a really important fact to you? It rose out because both the draft is in print and the final appeal was put in print at the time to be distributed in the North by the official royal printer Bartlett. So we've had these, but no one's actually put them side by side and notice they're the same document, only different. And once you do that, you, you think, see the difference see, between life and death. That shout, that deafening silence shouting out at you from the first one. Because it seemed that the thing that strikes me about this December scene, for all its splendor, is the unlikeliness of it. And I think that's the attraction of it. Because by this point, we, if the natural course of Henry's emotion should be followed, it seems that Cromwell, by logic, would be dead. Yeah. But he wasn't. <clears throat> Was there an affection between the two, or is that taking it too far? Oh, I think affection. Henry loved people who delivered the goods for him. And so far, apart from the appalling mistake of the pilgrimage, he delivered the goods. And I think there is a personal uh, rapport. Cromwell had charm, a dark sense of humor, charm. He could be funny. He was clearly clever but uh, concealed it enough to make the king feel he wasn't cleverer than the king. So all that is, is a pretty good basis until someone else tries the same trick. And there were always people who wanted to destroy Thomas Cromwell, chiefly the Duke of Norfolk. So he lived to fight another four years, Cromwell, in this moment. One question that's always fascinated me, and I'm not going to miss the opportunity to ask you this, is one of these big historical theories which takes us back from the end of the year to January when Henry had that fall. Did that change his personality? Did he become more erratic and angry as a monarch after the fall in January in 1536, do you think? Well, he did, but I don't think that that's the sort of argument one can make because uh, if you phrased it slightly differently, did he become more cruel, more vindictive, mm -hmm. more brutal? No. I think it's right there from the beginning of the reign. The first thing that Henry VIII did was to execute two of his father's ministers as part of a noble plot, but he went along with it and perfectly happy with it. No, he liked uh, executing people whom he regarded as the enemies of God, who are his enemies. It's there happened to be more of them towards the end of his reign. Okay. Look, to me, when we're talking about one year, it was that fact, which I wanted to clarify because it happens at the start and kind of colours the history that happens afterwards. But what you've given us in microcosm is the whole fascination of the 1530s in this one year because we have the king's marriage, the great matter, which has then come to a very strange conclusion mm. with um, Anne's death in tower. Then you have the business of the Reformation, which was always, I mean, you've described it um, elsewhere, I think is a great car crash of history in a way, the Reformation. This was another moment when things nearly went off the road. Great changes across British, uh, sorry, English society, I should say. Mm, sorry, English. I've got an Oxford Don here. I'll get my <laughs> terms right. But then this great question of are you going to survive or are you going to fall? 
And here we see Cromwell. He's a survivor, isn't he? Yeah. He survives longer than he should do. And he does more than anyone would imagine one person could. Because the span of his life is one of great progress, great change, which lives with us today. Mm. I'm going to ask you one supplementary question before I hopefully can elicit one or two from you. So please think about what you want to say. But at the end of these travels, I want to see if there's one tangible object that you could bring back to your office in Oxford from 1536. If you could bring one thing back, what would it be to remind you of that time? Oh, my Tudor Desert Island Discs moment. Uh, I think I would like the keyboard which Mark Smeaton played for <laughs> Anne Bullen. Be a beautiful object, but just think of those fingers touching it and to be able to touch the same keys. I'm imagining walking down one of these small Oxford streets and in the distance hearing Mark Smeaton's keyboard tinkling away in the background, <laughs> which is the kind of thing to give one a shiver if it wasn't quite so pretty a thing. Um, thank you very much. Have you got any questions, please? Uh, thanks very much. Um, from an overarching point of view, what two or three characteristics or attributes do you think made Cromwell the man he was? I think one of them is that ability which Hiram Mantel was so good at spotting, the detachment, the observation, that tick, the literary tick in her novel, which is so irritating when you start reading, isn't it? He is always Cromwell. And, and that's a wonderfully distancing thing. Coming out of that, his incredible cosmopolitan outlook. He knew Italy. He spoke Italian. He spoke French. He spoke Latin. He spoke a bit of German, a bit of Spanish. He, he was just much more broad in his view than most Tudor English people of his time. He knew that Tudor England was marginal and second-rate, and it could be better, and his role in life was to make it more powerful, more wealthy. Uh, so there's that. And also, I think that the final thing, which I would say almost endears him to me, is his amazing ability to improvise to take a situation which could have been disastrous and make it his own. The dissolution of the monasteries, the way it was done, that awful, disastrous policy of dissolving the smaller monasteries which triggered the pilgrimage of grace was not actually originally his policy and he advised against it, but he took it on. And, and again and again, what, what Geoffrey Elton thought was the creation of a bureaucracy to take power out of the, the hands of an informed monarchy. It wasn't that at all. It was just one way of placing his people on the chessboard as he wanted. So improvisation, brilliant. Gentlemen here, please. Yesterday, you uh, highlighted the uh, importance of the printing press and the growth of uh, the books published. Um, I was going to ask you, in the, uh, the period um, of the latter part of the 1530s, you have a number of translations of the Bible into English, mm. Coverdell, and the Matthew Bible, and the Great Bible. To what extent do you think that, that uh, Cromwell was a pivotal figure in, as it were, promoting these English translations? Hugely uh, central to it absolutely central to promoting the translations. He knew them all, 
Uh, Coverdale had been a friend at least from the 1520s because we got letters from the 1520s from Coverdale to Cromwell. They're very intimate. Tyndall, we don't have the evidence uh, so much, but clearly Cromwell was terribly concerned to try and get him from uh, uh, saved from destruction in the Low Countries. And then Cromwell is actually financing the printing of English translations in Paris, which actually contravened one of the, the, the laws he'd already promulgated himself in England. And he rescued these sheets of the Bible when the French Inquisition tried to confiscate them and brought them back to Southwark, where the Bible was completed. So you, you can hardly imagine the, the Bible without Thomas Cromwell, and he fooled the king into making it official when in fact it, most of the, the text had been written by the king's enemy, William Tyndall, whom the king had cheerfully seen remain in a cell in the Low Countries and, and executed uh, without doing anything about it. And that's a wonderful confidence trick on the king. It's one of, probably one of the reasons why the king listened to Cromwell's enemies. He's a heretic. He's deceived you, your majesty. Well, he had. You talked of um, Cromwell's eyes and ears. Who were these agents? How did he recruit them? From what strata of society and how were they recompensed? Friendship. Uh, so gentry all over the country, particularly from the Woolsey years, which meant uh, he, he, as he moved around the Midlands and southern England dissolving smaller monasteries, he developed friendships with local gentry, which lasted. And, and interestingly, very often with gentry who, when the Reformation started happening, did not choose the Protestant route, which meant that through the 1530s, he had a network of contacts which weren't just a small and unpopular religious party, evangelicals or Protestants. They were right across the board. So gentry are important. He clearly had an eye for bright young men, didn't always get it right. In the book I said he, he, he had a great affection for wild young men that uh, the rest of the world deplored. I think they reminded him of himself when he was their age. And some of them were really talented. I mentioned Rafe Sadler, who was in his household in the 20s, whom he got into the king's private apartments, the privy chamber, in 1536 and from then on was absolutely invaluable. So it's, it's a mixture, and uh, there are people who have come up from very little, like himself. Uh, he will identify people of talent, like Thomas Risley, who had been um, Bishop Gardner's servant, and he, he sort of poached Risley in 1536. It's, it's a mixture, but talent is all, and there are talented people among the nobility and the gentry, uh, and, and that's not a problem for him. Uh, these are not all new men. Uh, the City of London, terribly important, because that's what he knew from his 30s uh, and 20s. He, he had lots of friends who very often also became Protestants and, and rich London merchants. So really important to have the city there as a source of gossip, uh, intelligence of all sorts. All that remains for me to do now is to thank you very, very much today for talking, sharing your expertise and travelling through time and for you getting up um, for the nine o'clock slot at Buxton. Well done. Round of applause in your way. Can we join together to say thank you very much? To thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Peter. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that foray into our archives. We certainly did. I'll be back next week with a new episode and you'll all be hearing more from Violet and Artemis and me very soon. But for this week, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>